We are back for another episode of Establishing Shot. Welcome to our podcast. We are glad to have you here. We are here in the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center, not in the Browning Cinema yet again. Has anyone figured out the location? Listen closely. Can you tell I don't what think we, <laughs> room we're in? I don't think we, we have any cues. Actually, I don't know if it's a room that people would want to find, but... Um, it's sort of, yeah, well, let's, no, no hints, but uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, we're glad to be here. My name is Ted Barron. I am the executive director of the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center. I am joined by my wonderful, not just esteemed, but wonderful colleague, Ricky Herbst, uh, who is our cinema program director. Hello, Ricky. Hi, Ted. And we are also joined again Yay. by the one and only Chris Becker. Uh, Chris is an associate professor in the Department of Film, Television, and Theater, um, all-around great person who uh, we love to talk to talk to about movies as well as life in general. Sure, uh, she has lots of good advice, right? As our students will tell you. Um, great teeth, I hear. I got my hygienist said awesome teeth, which you might be able to hear again if you got really sharp ears. You can hear how great my teeth are. Okay, well, one of Chris's uh, among Chris's many interests. Our, uh, she's uh, within our Department of Film, Television, and Theater. She's she's on our TV studies. Uh, uh, she's a big part of our TV studies concentration, and so we thought we'd do something related to television. Um, and so we are going to give you for our top three this month uh, our top three um, TV shows that that were somehow adapted into film. So actually, the films we're going to talk about the films that were based on. Uh, a TV show or some TV format, right? Is that that sounds that sound about like, right? That sound like good parameters for this. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we of course, you know, Hollywood is inevitably um, mining the depths of its uh, lack of creativity by trying to take what's already successful and, and redo it. So we we probably won't be talking about too many of those. I mean, maybe a couple um, of uh, TV shows that they kind of saw as great resources for uh, for film adaptations. But I think we've got a good mix of, uh, of films to, to talk about with you this month. So, um, Chris, as our esteemed guest, would you mind taking the reins and uh, giving us your first choice? Or- sure. Is there any strategy to the order? or uh- It's up to you. You can go okay. in whatever order you want. Okay. Well, whatever strikes you. All three of mine fall into the same category of films I was obsessed with during high school and watched a million times with my friends that we mm-hmm. quoted endlessly to each other. Mm-hmm. So I literally have like a page of quotes with me in case, <laughs> in case I can't think of anything to say. I will just read quotes from films. Um, but the thing I want, one I'm going to start with is the one that especially felt most local to my heart, and this was the Blues Brothers. Uh. And I wasn't, I was not an SNL viewer because when the Blues Brothers skit started, I would have been like eight, and so I wasn't watching SNL when I was eight. Mm-hmm. Um, but I grew up in the Chicago suburbs, and Blues Brothers set in Chicago, very iconic Chicago moments in it. And so I'm sure it was probably something my family watched, and I kind of had, you know, when it came out in 1980, I had in that you know, kind of realm. But uh, when I got to call, excuse me, into high school, uh, me and my high school buddies were really into it. And partly that was also a time I was starting to get into jazz and blues and I was in jazz band. Um, so, the, you know, that kind of the, the, the Chicago-ness, the, um, the music, the, just the coolness of Jake and Elwood, the many, many quotes. Um, we just watch that thing endlessly. So that's that's my choice number one. And the roster of uh, guest musicians. Oh, incredible. Like Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, on and on. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, when you, it's, it's funny you you talk about you know sort of the age you are in experiencing it, it for the first time. And for me, it was we're about around, we're around the same age, and I can remember um, kids in grade school, some <laughs> older kids in grade school having the uh, record album, mm. uh, and it was and it seemed like they were really cool because they <laughs> they had that album mm-hmm. you know, that was that was seen as kind of edgy. Uh, but uh, and then and then I probably didn't see it until until high school. Um, and I, the thing I remember about it is, isn't it the movie that has the most uh, car crashes or the most cars destroyed? It could, yeah, <laughs> for the time at least. Yeah, it was, and it was. It became ridiculously expensive, like one of the most expensive movies right. made of its time. And that was partly because of yeah the big action sequences and they drive through a mall. Mm-hmm. This place has got everything. Is yeah. one of the lines driving through the mall that we said to each other endlessly. Um, and then you know like drive through the you know downtown Chicago and City Hall and stuff like that. Um, and so that was part of. The other part of it was reportedly uh, delays in shooting because John Belushi, of course, had um, substance abuse problems and there mm-hmm, were there mm-hmm. were delays in shooting. So it was yeah. a very expensive film. Yeah. Carrie Fisher pops up. Who Carrie was Fisher. Dan Aykroyd's girlfriend at the time. Little, I didn't serious. realize that. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. They were hot and heavy. They were very serious. And she plays <laughs> well, mystery I mean, she, woman. Right. They, yeah. She does. She ever get a I don't name? think she ever gets a name. Yeah, no. She um, no, I think she was she was definitely part of the the SNL crowd. Like she, you know, she. I mean, she. She guest hosted the show once, but she was she was very in with him and and obviously involved with Ackroyd. So, mm-hmm. yep. So, good start and uh, one w- we might be bringing back to the cinema perhaps soon. Perhaps, mm. perhaps they might be the Blues Brothers might be gracing us. Yeah. Uh, thoughts on Blues Brothers 2000? Did you did you bother with it? Anything past the film does not exist. Uh, <laughs> Dan Aykroyd does not you. exist for me anymore. And yeah. and Jim Belushi. Let's not. Oh, I just said his name. I, sh- I should say let's not even say the name of Jim Belushi. Is, but is he in the second one? Or is no, it, but I'm just Goodman. like sort of the legacy yeah, from yeah, yeah, yeah. you know from no, that. Know. Yeah. And it's like I like John Goodman too. And mm. he's yeah. That's that's kind of sad. well. And that which you were talking about Hollywood wanting to resurrect things that felt like. And I haven't seen it, so I can't say but that felt like something like resurrecting something that mattered to, to people and try to see if you can trot it back out again mm-hmm. and the problem is especially that original was so beloved that you'd have to surpass it in order to have people love the second one and mm-hmm. it apparently did not and so yeah. then it just sort of bred hatred for it i definitely and I, I definitely saw the sketches before i saw the film because it's not well i i would i had older siblings so i would get to stay up and watch saturday night live mm-hmm. but i don't know that i watched that in the, its original broadcast but there used to be these i remember they used to syndicate like half hour versions of saturday night live mm-hmm. um in like early you know probably early 80s so I, they'd show them a lot through that they used to use i mean they were definitely the Kind of marketing hitch of mm-hmm. uh, hook of the of, of those broadcasts, so that's where I would see it more often. Mm-hmm. But uh, my main uh, touchstone for the Blues Brothers, so I uh, graduated from high school in two thousand, so I kind of so Blues Brothers two thousand is your movie. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. <laughs> so that, you that can really have def- it. That <laughs> defined our generation. Um, really. Closed out the century on a hit. That's right. No, but so the Blues Brothers have a different. I mean, they weren't they weren't culturally like hot, right? In mm-hmm. in the mid mid nineties or whatnot. Even though I mean, there's obviously charm to the movie, and there was this thing where at the public school, like two um, guys would always dress up as the Blues Brothers and like show up and dance. At- <laughs> basketball games or football games or something. And it was something that you were seeing from afar 
And it was one of those, like, I don't know what they're doing, but it looks stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so, unfortunately, I think I let that guide my my view of, of the movie. Mm. But um, going back to it, you know, later on, uh, in particular, the Cab Calloway scene, uh, like, oh, this is this is incredibly sweet. Mm-hmm. And got to go watch Aretha now. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's yeah. Yeah. So. Well, and then one lingering quote that still is sadly relevant today, Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis. <laughs> Come election time, still relevant. That's right. That's right. So, all right, Ricky, what is your uh, first TV to film adaptation? Okay. So my first one is um, it, it's uh, Jackass, the movie. Um, and I was looking for a TV show that already kind of pushed the medium or felt somewhat verboten and then got to go to the movie theater because mm-hmm. uh, I think that shift is pretty interesting. Uh, we could throw in the same basket at South Park, bigger, longer, and uncut, I think, mm-hmm. where you had something that, uh, well, I don't know if Jackass was naturally, actually raunchy, but just like it felt like you were getting to see – um, well, like the R-rated version sure. of something. Uh, so Jackass comes out in the fall of 2002, um, and it's moving from cable, which feels like free range, to something even freer. Um, and also being physically out of the home, like being out of mom and dad's place and getting to watch something in the theater mm-hmm. with people who are also there to to laugh at it. Um uh, had some some real compulsion. And it was a film that I wasn't even intending to see. We went to go see 8 Mile, a movie I didn't want to watch. <laughs> um, and it was sold out. And so we're like, hey, let's go with Jackass. So it was one of those like great surprise, like, oh, I didn't mean to see this, but now mm-hmm. I'm seeing it. And um, I remember uh, the sound of some people in the back who had brought in um, beer bottles of some form because they hit the ground and you could hear them rolling <laughs> throughout the like clanging at each like level of uh, seats down the theater. And so it was a boozy filled uh, matinee, actually. A matinee, all <laughs> yeah. right. Um, but it had, uh, but it had so much. Uh, energy to it that it, it was uh, it had uh, it had the freak show mm-hmm. element um, and it didn't bother really with trying to be anything beyond itself. Yeah. I think that's one thing that we're going to find in some of our adaptations are the move from TV and the smaller components to film and having to break it out. Jackass was just like, oh, we'll give you 85 <laughs> minutes of what we did for 22 minutes. Well, just um, and as an audience experience, like, I mean, to have, you know, because this, this, it makes me think of when I saw Borat for the first time, seeing it with a, it was actually at a film festival and with a festival audience, people were just, it was uproarious laughter throughout. So very different from, you know, seeing that on television where it's like, you know, maybe just you and your friends watching it. Right. Um, so. And the and the cringe moments uh, getting to be something that also elicit laughter, <laughs> you know, and getting to hear right. other people's catharsis right. allows you to take part in your own. And so it was um, it was just like a hot cinema. Like people were were very much into it. 
Um, the takedowns after the film of it critically are really interesting. Um, everything from it being called willful idiocy for idiocy's sake, um, uh, pejoratively. That could also be like, <laughs> to me, I'm like, oh, yeah. That sounds good to me. That's exactly what they want. Right. a compliment. Put that on the poster again. Yeah, to um, it being called performance art, mm-hmm. positively. Again, mm-hmm. that could be something that you would call pejoratively. Uh, but uh, but uh, the the pacing of it is something that, I was surprised because I was reading reviews that people don't talk enough about, I think. It just clips right along. It uh, it has 40 scenes over 85 minutes. (laughs) Like, it moves. It doesn't doesn't, uh, trace backward very often, but when it does, it does so intelligently. It's edited super sharply. Um, Also, as an archive of masculinity of the late 90s and early 2000s, mm-hmm. I think it's worth going back to hmm. um, seeing that like that death drive, fight club, skateboard or skateboarding culture. Right. Like, well, that's that comes out. Of, I mean, the, the show comes out of like guys sharing skater videos, especially, right. right? So, right. So interesting just in terms of format of adaptation, because, yeah. you know, those those tapes were essentially like tapes that people made themselves mm-hmm. that they would share with their friends that gets turned into it. Cause this is before YouTube right? gets turned into a TV show. And then, mm-hmm. then it, then it also works in a film format. And this is something that, um, you know, in my small hometown, uh, my friends had their own, uh, show, uh, mm-hmm. that was similar. No one skateboarded. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just generally like pranking and things yeah, like yeah, that. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, getting back to the community school, the public school, like going in there with a video camera and like pretending to be characters. And so mm-hmm. uh, there is a um, a, a, a pre-YouTube thrill to getting to see people do this kind of candid camera prank thing mm-hmm. uh, while you being young and dudish uh, that – that had life to it. Um, so worth worth going back to. And, I mean, the visceral components probably should work regardless of time, I would think. Uh, but beyond that, looking back and thinking back about, ooh, I mean, we really uh, let people uh, – kind of, we let guys be uh, – hang out in the cave together and <laughs> do weird stuff. It's uh, a, a memorial to that, I guess. Great. Worth a watch. Um Great. Well, since you guys, um, I know you guys chose a lot of comedies for your top three uh, this time around. So I thought, well, I better keep in that vein. So my first uh, choice is Ingmar Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage. Hilarious. <laughs> it's the hilarious. <laughs> Delightful romp. Journey of a couple in Sweden. Um, yeah. So it's uh, Scenes from a Marriage was actually produced as a television uh, miniseries. So this is kind of an... I also wanted to just try to find maybe a a different approach to thinking about TV to film adaptations. So produced as a miniseries and then edited into a feature-length format uh, so that it could be released theatrically. And um, Bergman is getting a lot of attention right now. It's his centennial year. Um, A lot of places are doing uh, retrospectives of his work, so there's a lot of people revisiting and kind of reconsidering um, his work. It's, I, I've, I'd say that, you know, when I first started getting involved in film programming and, and just kind of film studies in general, Bergman was, you know, it held in really high regard, and he seemed to have kind of fallen out of favor over the last um, 10 years or so. Due for um, a comeback. Yeah, so I think it's actually, I mean, his centennial is in some ways well-timed 
for people to kind of give him uh, reconsideration. And I would say this is, I mean, this is by far my favorite of his films. I've rewatched it uh, a couple of times over the years, and it's still, I, I think it just still captures kind of the best qualities of his work without getting, um, in terms of, you know, these kind of very intense uh, scenes of dialogue between, uh, usually between couples, usually between the, the two uh, actors we see in this film, Erlan Josefsson and uh, Liv Ullman, although you could throw Max von Sydow in there, but he's he's not in this one. Um, and essentially, Scenes from a Marriage just kind of follows the, the development of their relationship um, as adults um, over, uh, you know, over a period of, I forget how much time it is, it's a few years. Um, but what, one of the things I love about it is, is it starts off with uh, kind of documentary framing. And this was at a, and, and when I saw this, it, it was at a point when I was really fascinated with films that were trying to sort of um, uh, interrogate, you know, what documentary means. And I think Bergman was kind of ahead of the curve on this in terms of thinking about how, um, you know, when we, when we witness um, people being interviewed and testimony, what that means and what, and, and what kind of authority we ascribe to it. But but more importantly, where I think this works is 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 just capturing those scenes of dialogue between um, the two lead actors, um, and just being a very kind of honest reflection of kind of the joys of marriage, the struggles of marriage. Um, I always uh, I always have this affection for when they 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 have a big fight within the, the movie, and then they say, "Well, let's just take a break and eat beer and sand and eat uh, sorry eat sandwiches and drink beer." It's just like, <laughs> that's their simple meal. That's kind of their comfort. Uh, throughout the film, um, but you know, it's and and actually, he ended up making a sequel to the film, which is which is less interesting. A film called Sarabond, uh, which was one of his last uh, films that he directed. Um, but Bergman, as you go through his his work, he, there's a couple of instances of this where he, you know, he did uh, some of his films in a sort of a grander scale. Fanny and Alexander is another one, which was done as a TV uh, miniseries, but then. Uh, also released theatrically, and usually, you know, when 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 you make the adaptation from one format to another, something gets lost. But I think in in his case, um, he his films kind of work well in both formats; that they work well as miniseries, and they also work well as feature length films. So, well, especially that focus on character in his films. Like I I, I had a huge um, Bergman phase in, in film school. Like sort of everybody <laughs> yeah, in yeah, film yeah. school, especially. Sure you know, a couple decades ago goes through your Bergman phase. And, 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 you know, probably the part of what's fallen out of favor is they are quite pretentious and they're very yes. artsy. Um, <laughs> and yet they maintain to me just this, this beautiful uh, character display. And I fell in love. All, I became obsessed with Gunnar Bjornstrand um, <laughs> in his films. Like it was just like, and, and Liv Ullman and all yeah, those, yeah. like they're just, they're gorgeous Swedish people. Yeah. Um, and then he's just, he can so intricately shoot them. And then his, his, you know, the plots and the premises are all these deep, emotional, um, kind of searing, often topics. And so I just, I just got obsessed with characters and faces, especially. Mm -hmm, and that's one mm -hmm. thing, you know, television is really good at, character and faces. And um, so you can, I think you could boil that down then into, to, into a smaller package in his films. And, and I think that's still compelling. And that, and that reliance on close-ups that he does within his films is something that, you know, it starts to become a cliche, I think, for people. But mm -hmm. but in this in this film in particular, it just works incredibly well because you get that sense of intimacy. You get that sense of, you know, that, you know, a marriage is oftentimes, you know, this this very intense relationship where, you know, the two characters, the two people that who are in the marriage, that's their whole world. Mm -hmm. and, that's, and that's where everything kind of revolves around. So um, but I also think it, you know, it just speaks to kind of human experience in 
in a really just, just a really meaningful way without being too pretentious in terms of you know his questions about you know religion and um, uh, and just other concerns that come up within mm-hmm. his work. All the all the things that Woody Allen kind of <laughs> corrupted <laughs> in his, his attempt to go back to to Bergman's work. So, so yeah, so um, uh, worth checking out if you if it's if it shows up if you're in a community where they're doing a, a Bergman Centennial, I encourage you to check this one out or put it high on the list. It's I, I would say it's his best film. So, uh, Chris, number two, what is number two of your? Well, let's go the complete a 180 from Bergman, <laughs> and that would be The Naked Gun from the Files of Police Squad. Basically, the silliest stuff you could get. And the TV show of this was a flop. There was only, I think it was only six episodes that were so poorly rated um, that that got canceled. Um, And again, I don't think this is one I saw in theaters. I'm pretty sure this was, I remember I owned a a videotape of it, um, VHS copy. Mm -hmm. So maybe it was a birthday present, something like that. Um, But I probably wore it out. And again, it was just, you know, it's just so silly and full of dumb puns. And then Leslie Nielsen is so good at at maintaining straight man status while he's saying these completely ridiculous things. Mm -hmm. He's so good at that character. Um, So that was that was an obsession that we we watched a million times. Yeah, I can remember the TV show and being really bummed when it when it didn't make it because it was it was like six episodes or something. Yeah, it it didn't get very far. And then. And then seeing it, you know, revived as a movie was great. So it's the it, it was it Zucker Abrams Zucker. Yeah, and uh, the you know so so the and you know all those other ones like Airplane we watched that a million times. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know and then there were two additional Naked Gun movies, and there's always talk of maybe resurrecting more because it's you know it's a. I say it's an easy format in a certain sense. Um, to me, it's hard to make those jokes work because then the sequels felt like kind of tired retreads and mm-hmm. set that first one seemed to somehow capture the magic. Um, but yeah, just I don't, I don't think you could make it without Leslie Nielsen as well. He's Oh, that's true. Yeah, he's not around anymore. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. He's but the, the scary movie franchise, mm-hmm. I think, picks up the 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 genre or whatever pretty well. And right. Now we're... We're we're a country adrift. We're without the we're without I mean, the parody film right yeah. now. Yeah. What? Yeah. What? What would be the last? Uh, I think if you're looking for a franchise, actually, it's yeah. the scary movie. Well, mm-hmm. what would you pair? I mean, what, that's the thing. What would you make a parody of at this point? Because what are the established? I mean, do you do it of a superhero genre or something? Because mm-hmm. that's you know probably the most pervasive. Which uh, thing. the scary movie world did, did they go try into? To do, yeah, but like, those get mm-hmm. really. Yeah, those doesn't uh, really pan out that well. I mean, scary. I mean, there's scary, scary movie one, and then isn't it pretty much all downhill from there? No, 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 it holds no. up. But no. when they get into like epic movie and things like that, the other when they do mm-hmm. other genres, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't no, hold sure. yeah. quite as well. Yeah, do we have a modern day Mel Brooks? Like that's yeah. yeah I mean, he's alive, so, but uh, yeah. I don't know that he's still making movies. Yeah, no, you don't have anybody doing it you know, kind of consistently, mm-hmm. I think, in the way that, that he would have. Documentary now, mm-hmm. in some yeah. ways, picks up the the pieces and goes with it. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's where we'll find it. It'll, it'll be it on be Netflix. Film. Yeah, it'll be. It'll Although be there is, there's like a niche pretentiousness to documentary now, because some of the things they're you know, they're parodying not many people have seen and it's sort of like a almost an exclusive club if you've seen something they're parodying. It still yeah. works thing even if you haven't seen that's I think the artistry of yeah. documentary now, even if you haven't seen the original documentaries, they're still funny. But they get pretty niche with some of the things they're they're mocking. I'm a proud member of that club. I'll just say that. <laughs> Kids aren't watching uh, swimming to Cambodia every day now. <laughs> <laughs> and just waiting oh my for God, the parody. The, of stop it. making sense parodies so good. It's so good. <laughs> 
Uh, but yeah, the fact that we actually, um, I just recorded the lecture for the truth and fiction class mm. and was talking about uh, Documentary Now, which I sometimes call Democracy Now, <laughs> uh, but Documentary Now and how um, even without the referent, they still expose the the tropes so well mm-hmm. that they can teach you about documentaries, even if you don't see the parody lines that they're drawing out. Right. But yeah, but yeah as for zany, goofy... Um, uh, I don't know what you, whatever you call that that world of naked guns and scary movies. We need more of it. Mm-hmm. The world needs the world needs we more need release. of that. We yeah. need like release from all the craziness. Mm-hmm. Okay, Ricky, number two on your list is um, so um, I also have a uh, Saturday Night Live to uh, to the big screen. And it was uh, the transition. second one. So Blues Brothers, Blues Brothers was the first, and then the second is Wayne's World. Really? There was nothing else in between. Nothing else in between. And then there was wow. a slew of them in the '90s after Wayne's right, World. Right. Uh, that all um, they they have never they've never landed. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, so um, just on that, uh, Wayne's World is made for about twenty million and brings in about one hundred and twenty million. Wow. Uh, Blues Brothers made for five, which was. Like you said, a lot for the time. It was more than that. Blues oh, Brothers sorry, budget. sorry, sorry. Uh, Blues Brothers, uh, or whatever, more than that. Mm-hmm. But it brought in sixty. But then after Wayne's World two, you get to real diminishing returns. Yeah. Um, in more ways than one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, but out there, there's superstar night. The Roxbury Coneheads, Ladies Man McGruber, Stuart Saves Family. It's Pat. Say, don't forget Stuart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so these are. Uh, so those are some of the. Some of the Saturday Night Live titles. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Wayne's World, uh, it was just directed by uh, Penelope Spheris. Uh, comes out in February of 1992. Uh, by the way, Wayne's World came, 2 came out in December of 1993. I remember uh-huh. my friend being really sad that people are going to look back and see Wayne's World 1 in 92 and Wayne's World 2 in 93 and think that they just like churned out one for the other. He's like, it's not fair to the years. <laughs> I was like, okay, what? I think it'll be okay. Wow. <laughs> but he was, remember lamenting that as we were seeing yeah, Wayne's World yeah. 2. But Wayne's World 1, um, like I said, a rare hit uh, for Saturday Night Live. Um, but uh, one reason why I think it was a hit is that um, the sketch itself uh, is very confined on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um that it is set in, you know, a basement studio that is looking to get out into the world. And so unlike other sketches where the scene is more sealed, Wayne's World is all about wanting to get out into the world and, like, trying to engage with you and trying to be loved. Uh, So it's easy to put characters that have that motivation in the world and see what happens. Um Similar to, I think, Jackass. Like, okay, we are we are uh, guys that want to be adored, <laughs> and uh, that's a pretty good fodder for uh, for comedy. Um, so, um, so with that, uh, I think uh, Wayne's World also does a good job with the filler because sketches are what five to eight minutes long. Mm-hmm. That does not a ninety minute movie make. <laughs> um, and it's smart about uh, the kind of the horse meat it throws in yeah. in order to make a movie. Um, and well, it even, seems to be, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, even something like using Bohemian Rhapsody, mm-hmm. um, which to to fill up you know five minutes 
six time. and a half. Oh. <laughs> they cut it. They actually they cut it. They don't do it. Okay. It's not like an Aki Kurosmaki like okay. scene. <laughs> they they cut it with other things. Yeah. But just the the idea that the music will carry you through it, and like Dazed and Confused, it mm-hmm. is very much a soundtrack film. I think uh, this was a BMG CD. I think that I that I had um, like a lot of people, <laughs> um, and uh, you mean it, like ten for ten for a nickel kind of CD or yeah yeah <laughs> the, yeah whatever whatever the Columbia House BMG deal <laughs> right. was, um, but uh, but the between the music and the gags, which I you know I don't know the history that much, but seem like almost throwaway sketches that you're trying to incorporate or characters that they maybe were pitched at some time for the show. Well, I would say two things. One is that, you know, the sketch for me never wore out its welcome. It's, you mm. know, there are so many of these Saturday Life sketches that, you know, they they work maybe, you know, three times and then then they're done. And then they just, when they, because, and you can see when they try to do later iterations of them, they just fall flat. But Wayne's World, because I, I think they, they redid it recently, I can't remember when, but uh, within they do the it last for like five the, years, the anniversary or whatnot. I don't know what the occasion was, but they actually it, it still really held up. Like all the mm-hmm. all the familiar you know lines and everything. Just I, for me, it still it still works. But it's also to what I think of it as is one of the first kind of meta comedies where they're you know they're constantly aware of making you aware of the film that you're watching or you know where they're. Isn't there a whole thing where they're like they're doing product placement, or is that in Wayne's World too? I can't. Remember. No, that's yeah. They are yeah. They are very uh, like you said. Yeah, it's a meta comedy, and even uh, the jokes as they are carrying out the um, uh, like the shticks are like being removed from the comedy themselves and using mm-hmm. devices to to laugh back on it. So okay. it does have. Um, I would think kind of similar to Anchorman, people mm-hmm. that uh, maybe connected with that. Uh, it jokes at itself as well mm-hmm. uh, in a way that when you were in, you know, fifth grade, as I was, I was like, oh, this is hilarious. You know, that's <laughs> a comedy that, that really stings pretty well. So, And it somehow is very much of its time. And yet a lot of those lines still linger. People still say not and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Like that still feels... <laughs> You know, something that's that's part of the zeitgeist, even as it's it's very much a you know film of, of its time. Yeah. Well, back to the Borat reference. Actually, the one, <laughs> the I watched it recently, and and the one scene that's that stuck out to me is hilarious. Is when he's he's trying to learn how to he's trying to learn comedy, and the comedian and the and the coach is telling him use the word not, and that's the <laughs> best way to make a joke. And, and there's a whole exchange. Which I yeah. Won't recreate, but well, any I mean the. Uh, <laughs> The the irony or the lack of irony, I mean, it just because it's formed in the inverse um, or uh, because you are dealing with a derivative and that being the negative form, not as it repeats itself, it, it doesn't it stays primed. Right. Yeah. So right. No, the, the joke work. becomes infinite. Have you just explained it and made it not funny now? <laughs> not. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a bit that I think that that's the the agelessness that you have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what the characters are, too. Like, mm-hmm. we are grown up, mm-hmm. like, 12-year-old boys still inhabiting that world. And, yeah. Any and, affection for any of the other Saturday Night Live adaptations, or do they all? Chris, Chris, you seem to be. I don't know that I've seen any of them, but there <laughs> might be a reason why. But there's not much there. I remember. 
superstar. Something about maybe. the ladies' man making me laugh. Yeah, like at the beginning, but then falling asleep during it. Yeah. Hmm. Um, superstar and Night of the Roxbury. No, no, Coneheads. No. Um, it's Pat. I remember. There's a little something in it, Pat, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> How would that play today? I wonder. Oh. Uh, not well. <laughs> Who knows? Not. <laughs> um, yeah, or even Stuart Save His Family now with Franken's. Oh, that's true. How do we yeah. mm-hmm. revisit so. those? Okay. Maybe that's a upcoming there 2019 so that's, series. That's your, uh, that's your learning beyond the classics. There you go. Fall of 2020. <laughs> Mark your calendars. Okay, so um, my second film. So part of this was also to try to think about like shows, TV shows that I did actually have an affection for before they, uh, you know, you have a kind of movie version of that. And I used to look forward to summer in part, as I've talked before on the podcast, um, about being free to watch as much television as I could. Um, and one of the things that would typically only air in the summer uh, was The Monkees. Because the monkeys only ran for two seasons, and so it worked as a summer rerun uh, really well. Um, so I would look forward to getting to see episodes of the monkeys during the summer. And a film that I probably would not have appreciated at the time that I liked the monkeys, <laughs> the TV show, but I've come to appreciate as an adult is uh, their feature film. I don't know if it's their debut, um, but uh, it's the film Head which was uh, directed by Bob Rafelson, uh, who worked on the TV show, and Jack Nicholson wrote the script, uh, interestingly, and pops up in the film uh, very briefly. Um, so essentially what it is is it takes kind of the format, the formula or the format of the TV show and intermingles it with kind of some weird 60s kind of political content. So you have the monkeys doing kind of their wacky sketches and then you'll have footage of Vietnam <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, actual, you know, you see the footage of the Viet Cong soldier being assassinated in the street, um, kind of mixed in with, with all of this goofiness. So, um, uh, you know, head of course, you know, drug reference, very, has a very, has a very trippy quality. And even the music that's within the film, um, which is a soundtrack. It's not, you know, it's it's a break away from their earlier kind of pop music into into more psychedelic music. I think is actually it holds up as one of their best uh, albums as a kind of complete album experience. Um, but uh, but you know, surprisingly entertaining. Also, I think it speaks to my uh, kind of interest in, uh, like you were talking about with Jackass, kind of little bites of. Uh, entertainment kind of strung together, short attention span uh, uh, entertainment. So yeah, holds up holds up well. And, and an interest, a curious move as an adaptation of a TV show in that um, you know it was described at the time as kind of killing off the monkeys who who literally fall off a bridge uh, <laughs> or jump off a bridge in, at the beginning and the end of the film. Well, so, there, go ahead. Well, there was contention, wasn't there, between the guys, the monkeys, and then Rafelson, and that sort of that's what Rafelson was hoping that it would right. kind of kill kill off the whole thing. I, I mean, yeah, but at the same time, they were also. I mean, it's at a point when they're trying to get more creative control. Although mm-hmm. they didn't write a lot of the songs, Mike Nesmith wrote a couple. There's a song written by Peter Tork. There's a song by Mike Nesmith, but they've still got you know, like Carol King wrote is co-writer of a Porpoise song. Um, so it's, you know, when they're trying to uh, gain more agency over their, over who they are. Mm -hmm. Um, so they're trying to be, you know, they want to be taken more seriously, Mm -hmm. but, um, 
but yeah, I guess there there was some tension about you know was it too was it just too out there for mm. people to to really embrace. And as for like how the monkeys track the Beatles, mm-hmm. this is head is coming sixty eight. It's right yeah, alongside Yellow Submarine movie, yeah. right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. So it's same. I mean, same year. So are they chasing the Beatles at this point, or do you think they're doing something that's? I mean, it's hard to. I don't think they were. Ever, I mean, they were. You know, they were considered a, a, a you know a, a pop ersatz version of the Beatles. So they were never really taken seriously in that regard. I don't think they were ever trying to seriously compete with them. But they were definitely, you know, drawing from. I think where the Beatles were getting more adventurous, they were. I think drawing influence in terms of how they were trying to reshape their image. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think then part of the problem was the that the sort of poppy audience didn't like it once they start to take that turn, and then right. the radical audience they might have appealed to tied them to the poppiness, and so, so they couldn't take them serious. Yeah, right. so they so. kind of didn't didn't even have a place to go then. Essentially, exactly didn't have an audience to go to. Which is in the film. I mean, the film was a flop. I mean, nobody. I mean, it didn't have. Uh, you know, nobody saw it at the time. But it's it's a, it's a good piece to go back to, and actually kind of holds together as a as an overall experience, and it's got some. Got some real dark stuff, in it. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, while still, you know, giving you kind of the entertainment value that that they were, you know, I think they're great musicians, and when they actually get to play their instruments, um, you know, they 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 sound good. So, um, yeah. So, but also just you know, a show, an interesting case of a movie based on a TV show that you know I always had great affection for growing up, but then goes in just a totally different direction so chris what is your third selection the final one that we watched endlessly in high school monty (laughs) python and the holy grail and i don't think we had watched much of the tv version it might have been on late night pbs but Mm -hmm. again our our currency in high school was passing around videotapes Mm -hmm. and we we had a copy of holy grail that we watched endlessly and i think especially what we liked like it felt special and different like it was part of like you know, it, it felt like you were part of a cool club mm-hmm. to 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 be watching Monty Python. It felt re- like really smart comedy. It felt um, special because it was, you know, although it's making fun of all that, you know, it felt a little bit historical. There was something sort of erudite about it um, while still having stuff like, you know, I fart in your general direction, <laughs> quotes like that. So it was sort of this perfect melding of as Python you know, was this perfect melding of sort of, you know, comedy that feels intelligent and witty, but also could be as basic and silly as possible. Um, and, and, you know, and then also in a kind of, although that film had a narrative, it's also kind of, um, in modular format, there's bits. Mm-hmm. They go from, you know, they're all within the context of, of King Arthur and, um, search for the Holy Grail, but there's variant bits that they go to. And so it also modular. And so then again, in viewing with viewing friends, you can just put a scene on something like that rather than watch a whole, have to have a whole narrative experience. So it kind of brought all of those great things together that we would love for watching a movie over and over again. Yeah. I used, I was a big fan of the TV show mm-hmm. and TV series. Cause it used to air, I, remember, I think it used to air like late night on PBS, mm-hmm. uh, maybe on the weekends or I can remember it. And also it, it, I associate it with summer. Cause I think that's, Maybe when it was first, uh, first kind of rebroadcast, because I don't think it's it's well past the original series when I would have been seeing it probably in early '80s, and um, and I was all I was I was kind of resisted the the films um, that were kind of you know self-contained films you know or you know that that had uh, a 
you know, kind of a full narrative to them essentially versus I, I liked, I, my preference was for something like, and now for something completely different, which right. is essentially taking the TV sketches and putting them into a movie. Cause I think I preferred like the non sequitur. Although, you know, when I later came around on the other films like Holy Grail and Life of Brian, um, you know, you see that those, even though, you know, you have, you know, the same characters kind of going through those films, there is still the non sequitur sort of bizarre. <laughs> breaks and turns and um that 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 you know kind of are consistent with the with the show but i was a you know i used to love the show mm-hmm. used to watch it all the time and i think we also got hold of an audio tape of you know one of their live concerts mm-hmm. and the handful of things that were on that there was the parrot sketch and the cheese shop and so mm-hmm. that also there were a handful of sketches we would right. endlessly quote at each other yeah yeah my sisters had a vinyl copy of live at the uh-huh. hollywood bowl okay so well, just like Bergman comes in and out of flavor, <laughs> uh, Monty Python, I hit their rain shadow. Mm. So, the, I, and it's part because the comedy's always been reincorporated, reincorporated, redone, refined, yeah. refinished. Um, and so, when it came to me, it was like, Meh, well, I don't, I don't, I don't get what the hoopla's about. <laughs> Plus, having uh, like older siblings or whatnot say like, "Hey, this is funny," mm-hmm. is a sure way to like have so something was, not be funny. That's right. not an endorsement. See, that's interesting because usually, I mean, it, you often have you know that's how you get into stuff. Is right? Siblings introduce you to things. Yeah. Not well. I mean, that wasn't that didn't, that didn't quite work. Uh, work for us and I mean comedy's shelf life is is really difficult Mm -hmm. especially when it's trying to be silly because people have already been aping it and been silly in real life so you're like oh that's not that silly that joke's Mm -hmm. been done Uh, but you can go back and then in the best way to experience comedy, think like, oh, yes, I see why this is funny. <laughs> well, <laughs> especially that, like, all my examples, like, it was, like, shorthand for my friends. And we could just say, you know, the words run away to each other. And we'd mm-hmm. laugh uproariously over that. And so maybe even in the context of the film, that's not that funny. But it's, it becomes the in-joke among your friends. And suddenly that vaults it to legendary status. I think, And the fact that I think that was really sharp what you're saying about how it forms the club. Because if mm-hmm. you hear stories of Minor Python, mm-hmm. it is people using the shorthand, connecting over it, and using it to find like-minded people. Um, it's the, the, like, the website that you both go to and talk about <laughs> or whatever thread you follow back then. It's like, oh, we both find this funny. We're going to be friends. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, builds, it builds those bridges. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, Ricky, what is your number three? Uh, my number three, I don't know, shoot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I went with this because uh, I had thoughts about it, and then I kind of waned on him. But we'll still we'll you still can change it. it. Do you want to change it? No, no, no. We're no, going with good? it. Okay. We're going with it. <laughs> okay. So I was interested in a TV show that actively repackages itself uh for the movies, and I wanted to do a sequel. So mm-hmm. um, I was looking at Adam's Family Values, mm-hmm. but ultimately went with a very Brady sequel. Hmm. Um, so this comes out in 1996, uh, capitalizing on the Brady Bunch movie from 1995. Um, and the Brady Bunch is something that is uh, ubiquitous on cable growing up. It's something that we would watch during the summer just because it was on. Yeah. Nothing funny about it. Nothing interesting about it. It's oh my like, God. I used to watch it constantly. I mean, yeah, we me used too. to be after school from third to sixth grade. I'd watch you know, like two episodes. They used to do an, like an hour of them, I think. 
Mm-hmm. So you do two episodes a day, every day for like three years. And no matter how many times I've seen them, like the Hawaii episode or whatever, it doesn't matter how many times I've seen it, I would Always. watch them over Always. and over again. Yeah. And, and, it's a, and, and, and it's a weird thing of being like, you're you're kind of laughing at them, but you're totally sympathetic to them mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah, it's comfort food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's compelling enough. It <laughs> 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 yeah. keeps your attention, but yeah. it doesn't absorb you. Yeah, I it's also a, I also had a family of of six children, so there were you know dynamics to ah right. But hmm. although although that was the thing is we always would look at it and be like oh they're ridiculous because we you know we fight and we you know we say terrible things to each other. We're not, mm-hmm. we're not the Bradys, which is what they play on in the movie really well. Right, um, and I think the just like the home, the look of it, there was something really beautiful to that. Um, the staircase in particular is just like something that <laughs> you want a house like that. You want, you I want think to it just be went, for, it went up for plan. sale again or something recently. Yeah, and somebody uh, HGTV bought it. Oh, they did. Yeah. Oh, are they going to remake it? There was like it? a rumor that like yeah. the... there's these. I can't remember what they're going to do with. Yeah, Lance Bass made Lance a big, Bass, big say. pledge, and then he, he sort of seemed to think there was something nefarious going on, and then it came out. Yeah, HGTV bought it, and I can't remember what they said they're going to do with it. Mm-hmm. Are they going to um, Simpsons home it? Remember when they turned that home into the inside of Simpsons? Oh, I don't know. Oh yeah. <laughs> But uh, but the the footprint of the real home doesn't match the footprint of the, the studio. So well, maybe that's what they're maybe they're gonna gut they're gonna it, make it look like that, and yeah, renovate it, and maybe maybe, maybe museum. I don't know what they're gonna do with it. Yeah. But right. that's what Lance Bass's concern was like. Oh, someone's gonna ruin it, and mm-hmm. HGTV says no, we're gonna honor it. So. Side note, it, can never, to, it can neither be ruined nor honored. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, side note, if you ever go to Boston and go to Cheers, Cheers doesn't look anything like Yeah. <laughs> Killing TV and movie magic with, the, <laughs> with both of that. Anyway, so but you saw it, so you watched the show on Yeah, and like then, everyone did. And yeah. I think that everyone agrees that it's just kind of boring but compelling. And so then to have it made into a film mm-hmm. where it actually was – like legitimately funny, mm-hmm. um, uh, and the conceit for those who haven't seen uh, the the very Brady movie or the sequel uh, is that it is a fish out of water. Uh, they are plucked from uh, the 1970s and still live their TV life. Only the world has aged around them. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you like your Elf, if you like your uh, Paddington, uh, Hot Topic Paddington. Uh, it works out really, really well. Um, and people that are, well, this is fish out of the fish out of water comedies, but people who are mindless about their mindlessness and unaware <laughs> is infinitely like charming and hilarious for me, especially when people hate them for it, <laughs> uh, which you see in the Brady Bunch movies that right. people, it gets under their skin that they're so. They're so good. Jolly and, yeah, yeah and, um, from a different time. And they don't explain things. Right. Like, this is this is one of the greatest things about the adaptation. It's not like, oh, we were in a time capsule or whatever. It's just like, yep, this is our life. <laughs> yeah. This is who we are, and this is the world around us. Um, so in the first one, uh, the they're looking to take their home, have it repossessed, Mm-hmm. Prescient, <laughs> exactly <laughs> to the reason. Sorry, Lance Bass. <laughs> um, and it has it has a really great um, ending. Spoiler alert: where they uh, 
uh, have to essentially win a, a competition to save right. their home, and right. it's a great joke. which is a, which which all these references to the show, yeah, and that's and what, back I mean, to the monkeys and back to the monkeys. There we go. <laughs> but the uh, oh yeah, Davy Jones. There we go. <laughs> Davy Jones shows up. Inf- and well, anyway, um, the uh, but what I was going to say, I can just remember seeing the first movie in the theater for the first time and thinking, and like just going like ah, you know, having really low expectations and just being totally enthralled. I mean, just you know, because it just worked. It, it played off of all of the nostalgia. It played off of um, you know, it just it, it they nailed some of the so, a couple of the actors within it are so spot on in terms of their <laughs> impersonations of those original characters mm-hmm. that it just it just works incredibly. Right, right. And so you have uh so you have a pretty I mean you have an extensive yet finite set of experiences that the world knows about Brady Bunch. So they ticked all of those boxes. Mm-hmm. So in the and they do that in the first one. So in the second one, they they don't really have to bother with as much of that. Mm-hmm. And they get a little more playful um, Cindy and Bobby form a detective agency. <laughs> um, kids running detective agencies will always win my heart over. <laughs> um, and uh, this one plays on the Hawaii episode. Mm. So if someone shows up pretending uh, to be Carol's former husband uh, in order to get this artifact. And the storyline is is ridiculous and hits on things that the show um, – didn't touch and are uncomfortable, for example, uh, the two oldest, uh, Marsha and, and Greg. There, yeah, yeah. Greg and Marsha, like, having a relationship, potentially. Right. I mean, like, those... Right, right. Those, which is always kind of an undercurrent of, you know... Right. Things that, that are going unspoken because it's so wholesome get to sure. come out and be, and be jokes. Yeah. Um, and as someone who's in junior high at the time... Uh, I just I found it so lovely. <laughs> I, you know, since I since I moved to the Midwest, what's the uh, is it uh, Kings Island? What's the what's the amusement park in Cincinnati? There's a Kings Island. Kings yeah. Island. So the Kings Island episode of the Brady Bunch, oh. always, I always like held in. Like I always wanted to go to Kings Island. My <laughs> wife will tell you this. Like every time we we go to like silent auctions and they have Kings Island tickets, I always <laughs> really high on them. And I still haven't. I, mean, I don't you know still why haven't I haven't gone? gone. I still haven't gone. Yeah, it's not know. far. I know. I should just go. Um, but the uh, because that like that just looked like the most perfect amusement park mm. that you could ever go to. I think because most of the amusement parks I grew up near were kind of scuzzy, and you know they didn't have Hanna Barbera characters kind of running through. So they don't bring in Kings Island, but but when you bring up the Hawaii thing, it always makes me think of you know, the destination episodes. Mm. Right. What was the one where they ended up in an old timey prison, like a Wild West thing? It's when they go to the Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon they get, episode. They get, they get derailed right. in in, in a, a ghost town. Right, ghost town. And I think it's um I think it's uh, uh who oh from uh, Fan- uh not Fantasy Island, Gilligan's Island. Uh, uh Jim Backus locks them up. <laughs> he's like he's like scraggly <laughs> And for some reason, he decides to lock them in a jail cell. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they referenced that. In the movie. No, they didn't. Mm. They didn't but. Were those the were those like the season enders? I don't know. I have to look I that because I, mean, I didn't watch it. I mean, I'm you know as old as I may be, not old enough to have seen it in its original right. broadcast. It was all same here. It was always in reruns. Yeah, but it was on all the time. Yeah. Which also the fact that if there was ever some type of curating to the to the episodes and how they were rolled out. The fact that it was in syndication and such a jumbly mess and you never knew what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, the the day the Hawaii episode pops up, you're like, oh, I hit gold. <laughs> this is on, you know, this right. is one. Two-parter. Yeah. Three-parter. Actually, three, it might be a three-parter. Wow. Two or three, yeah. Um, that, it's it's that, a movie, I, then. If it's an hour and a half, right. then it counts right. as a movie. Right. So anyway, very brave sequel. Worth rechecking. It um, it takes the, the charm of the first, and I think multiplies it by two. Gary Cole's voice, one of the one of the best best assets of the uh, of the of both movies, and, Gary, and, well, Gary, and Gary Cole generally, but Gary Cole like perfect imitation of Robert Reed. I mean, yeah, it's, it's so good. and Shelley Long, Shelley Long's really mm. good. Yeah, very good. Christine Taylor, go down the list. Um, okay, so my last film uh, based on a TV show is uh, a film. So since Chris is here, we had to work in. Uh, some uh, Chris among Chris's many interests are uh, British television. Uh, she she knows her stuff when it comes to British TV. Um, so I'm sure she is familiar with a TV show called The Thick of It, uh, which was I don't know for how many seasons it ultimately ran. Most British shows tend to run for shorter mm-hmm. time spans than what we're used to in the states. Um, uh, I guess it's maybe three or four seasons of it, um, and it's uh, the, a TV series about uh, a a, an office of a British minister and kind of the behind the scenes of British politics, um, which has essentially been adapted for American television as uh, the Julia Louis-Dreyfus show Veep. Um, it actually has some of the same creative team behind it. Armando Iannucci, um, who uh, directed most of the episodes of uh, uh, in uh, The Thick of It, also uh, directed, uh, it was a, was a, was the showrunner for Veep for, for many years. Um, and... Uh, there was a, a essentially a film adaptation made in 2009 uh, directed by Iannucci uh, titled In the Loop. Um, and in this film, it kind of takes uh, people from the British, uh, the, the British, uh, it's not the prime minister. It's, it's usually, I think part of the um, conceit of the show is that it's this really insignificant office mm-hmm. within British government and they're, and they're hopefully incompetent and, uh, uh, they're um, they're led by, or they're not, not really led, but there's within that office you have uh, the uh, unforgettable character of Malcolm Tucker, uh, who is probably one of the greatest TV creations of all time, <laughs> um, who's also in the film In the Loop, known for his uh, incredibly profane dressing down of his uh, colleagues uh, when he's when he's looking to get his way. So what the film does is it takes it, there, there's an international incident that involves uh, the Brits and the Americans and it kind of uh, takes the the kind of closed environment of the the British series of the thick of it and uh, brings them to Washington essentially where um, you have James Gandolfini playing, um, uh, uh, an American general. Um, Anna Klumsky uh, is uh, in the mix, who's also in Veep. Um, and it's just, um, if, you've, if, you, if you're a fan, I know a lot of people love the show Veep, but have not actually gone back to um, uh, this original source material for it. Uh, this film is a kind of nice gateway into that series because um, you get uh, some of the, some of the characters, you know, some of the similar characters that you see in Veep, but also characters from the British show and it's just hilarious and it's very fast paced smart comedy um, but again the best part being Malcolm Tucker when he has his way with people <laughs> Malcolm Tucker is Peter Capaldi right yes okay yeah. that's right yeah um, 
so Peter Capaldi looks exactly like my con law professor from law school. <laughs> really? Um, and who is also like very theatrical. I think he went to Juilliard and stuff. Um, uh, made it, I mean, it made it incredibly difficult to watch in the loop just because the entire <laughs> time it was like, oh, there's a uh, Professor Rubenfeld. <laughs> Every time he comes, um, it made it difficult. Um, in fact, Paddington. Peter Pauly shows back up. Oh yep. wow! Um, but Paddington's charm wins me over. Oh. <laughs> Made it okay. And nothing against. He doesn't. He, he doesn't like yell at Paddington. Yeah, he does. Oh, does he? he does yeah, he's Malcolm the curmudgeonly. Uh, uh, but without the swearing, I'd assume. I hope so. <laughs> no, they, they turn it to eleven. <laughs> he really dresses down Paddington. Gosh. But uh, yeah. So anyway, so it's um, and it's a film that kind of. I, I don't know. I, I feel like it kind of came and went. I mean, it's 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 got kind of a cult following, but um, uh, you know, good to go back to to kind of connect all of these different threads. I think within within the Iannucci uh, universe, so. and with the death of Stalin, do you see do you see a lot of parallels? Or um, I think in terms of pacing, um, you know, it kind of works in in a similar way ensemble piece where you can kind of you know you can move in between you know different stories. Um, D- Death of Stalin. Death of Stalin takes a really it has a serious turn to it that that these film that that this work doesn't really have. So um, I was actually expecting Death of Stalin to be a little more over the top, yeah. and it wasn't. And I think that's one thing that makes it work really well is it doesn't. Even Just as try to the, imitate, this. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's its own thing, and I think it it works really well. Yeah. So, so yeah, in the loop, highly recommended. So, is, is that it? Is that our? Those are our top three. Don't, that's the, that's that's the, the nine for the month. We've covered nine. So, all right. Well, uh, we hope you'll join us again uh, next time. We'll we'll talk about what's happening in November. Ooh, it's hard to even Ooh, think that we'll be talking. It's eighty eight degrees today, so I'm not even thinking about November. <laughs> But we want to thank Chris Becker for joining us. Hey, thanks, Chris uh, Becker. Thank you very much. It was fun. Sparking our conversations, making things interesting. And um, we'd love to have you back. And we want to give very special thanks to the great Kevin Krismanich, uh, who uh, records us. Um, make sure that I keep my mouth toward the microphone <laughs> as much as I can. Um, and also just uh, makes it so uh, you all can hear what we're saying. But uh, we also want to thank Stacy Stikovich for uh, making our uh, podcast available on various platforms and uh, helping to get the word out. Um, tell your friends. Uh, tell your tell your enemies. Uh, establishing. Tell shot. your MPs. Tell your MPs. <laughs> establishing shot is the place to be. So thank you all.